Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Roisin, what's in your mind this week? Well... Cathy, an article that you wrote and also an article by Orla Muldoon, who is a professor of psychology at University of Limerick. Um, Orla's article was published first this week on the Irish Times and then yours was the next day. And the headline of it jumped out at me and really crystallised something I'd kind of been ruminating on, but I hadn't quite fully articulated in my head. And I'll just read a bit out of um, Orla's article first. Uh, she said she spent the week reading and listening to analysis in the wake of Anna Kregel's murder. I presumed and indeed expected that someone else would state the blindingly obvious, but as yet they haven't. So here I am. I will say it. Anna Kregel was murdered by boys because she was a girl. And Orla went on to talk about that spectrum of uh, male sort of attitudes and contempt and violence towards women that are really a continuum and a spectrum and that at one end you have the slights and the everyday sexism that people experience and at the other very end you have, you know, these boys murdering Anna Creasel. And then your article um, the following day, Cathy, took up that theme as well and you asked questions like what is in the culture that gives a teenage boy that sense of entitlement to harass and assault a lone girl? Um, and you talked about the boys' worldview and indeed the worldview of many young men and uh, boys who have been brought up uh, in a society where this this contempt, as you called it, for women and for girls is almost ingrained in in some ways. And I just loved both the articles. I loved is probably an interesting word, but I admired both of the articles because for me, it hit the nail on the head of something that's really important. And in all our talk about, oh, this is an isolated incident and this was so unusual and this will never happen again or pornography or whatever it is, you know, trying to find reasons. But actually, there's a very big reason staring at us in in the face that we haven't yet tackled this culture that allows those very casual kind of discrimination to happen right up to people in women in their homes all over this country being assaulted 12 women a year dying at the hands of 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 a man in their home you know which is a very different subject to other ones that people have tried to bring in anyway that's my little take on it I just really appreciated your article and Orla's article too and I did urge everyone to read them it's be- I think maybe they don't want to anymore because it's all so deeply depressing but interestingly both were very well read and I broke the rule of nearly a lifetime by reading the comments below don't the line. Don't read the comments, Cathy. Don't read the comments. I know. And I am a firm believer in not reading the comments. Um, and Actually, some of them can often be quite enlightening. It depends on what you're writing about. But yesterday's were actually rather depressing because they were deflecting, deflecting. There was a huge amount of what about her? What about the boys that get beaten up? What about the male murder rate? Which is absolutely true. But 
the, and, and all this, a lot of them are very scornful of the emphasis on pornography as a, as a, as a factor in this. Whereas well, the other thing, did you find, Cathy? Because on certainly on Twitter, I saw this this assumption that both you and Orla were talking about all men. I just I find it really interesting. You know, as if you were tiring every single man and boy with the same exact brush, which in my view you weren't doing. It was a societal thing. I think that both of you were talking it was about absolutely a societal thing. I mean, we all know delightful men. Most of us are married or have been married to lovely men. And many of us have sons. It would be madness to say that all men are, are like those two boys, are like are, are, are murderous in their inclinations and all the rest. But my point was partly about the pornography, which came at the end, which you wouldn't have thought so to read some of the comments. Uh, my point was that some of the more heartbreaking details in Anna's case were old school stuff like ostracism, bullying, and sexual harassment that are as old as time. And that's where we see the beginnings of that culture that we talk about and that a lot of people don't believe in, apparently. I think that's what's maddening for people like us. We know it's there. I mean, intelligent women know it's there. Every woman knows it's there. A lot of decent men know it's there. I mean, I was actually very moved by one man who came on Twitter yesterday and said, come on, lads, stop deflecting. It's time for us all to unite and bond and get together to sort this out. Um, And some pornography and and social media came into the mix, of course. Um, And I'm really quite amazed at the notion expressed by a fair few people that just because such murders are rare, that we shouldn't be getting really agitated about extreme pornography. I mean, 10 years ago, I was writing about Ellen O'Malley Dunlop in the in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, who was talking about the correlation between the uptake of extreme pornography and the, the extra degradation and violence inherent in a lot of rapes that were starting to happen around that time. I've also written about this website, which was one of the most depressing things I've ever come across, which rates um, sex workers. Um, and the ratings were done according to the most extreme end of pornography. If they didn't do this, if the women didn't do that, if they just lay there, if they looked slightly uncomfortable, they were they got zero ratings. And the language about them was unbelievable. And all of that, to me, is at the root of this. Boys are being brought up in this culture. They may be brought up in the best of homes by the best of parents, but this is what they're going out to see. And I suppose one of the incidents that I mentioned in my piece, which really nearly broke my heart, and it was just one incident in Anna's life, was when she was accosted. She was coming home from supervising a children's disco at Halloween, and she was accosted by four older boys, one of whom loudly demanded sex repeatedly, and then hit her on the bottom. Now, that was described as a slap in the arse by certain, in certain reports. It was described as a grope in other, uh, on one news site, which I take real... Sexual ex- assault. Yeah, it was actual sexual assault. It was reported to the guards. He got a caution. But I wondered in my piece, had that guy received any other, uh, any other sanction? Had he been required to attend awareness-raising sessions? All of those things that we think need to be tackled and tackled at zero tolerance level. That there is actually no great mystery to this. There is, it's, a, it's a whole mix of things. The people below the line were right about one thing. There is no one answer to this. But a lot of people are so upset about mobile uh, smartphones being handed out to young people, for example. Um, I'm quite upset about it. We're handing this powerful, powerful machine that holds more technology than it took to get a man to the moon, apparently. We're handing these out to young kids 
and thinking they should be able to handle it with a few sessions of education in the classroom. I met a young girl yesterday, just going about my life, who said, could she have a word with me? I only know her from going into a particular place. Um, And she told me how she'd been. She's 18 and she'd been in touch with this guy. Uh, I think she met him through a dating site. I, but he was local. That was a big thing. She kind of half knew him through somebody else. And he said, uh, they, they got chatting and he was very nice looking and they were having these lovely chats. And finally, she mentioned to him that she was going to get, she needed to go shopping in a particular shopping centre on the Sunday. And he said, look, I'll, um, I'll pick you up and bring you. So this would have been the first meeting and she was thrilled to bits. And he picked her up anyway, brought her to the shopping centre. And on the way home, you can imagine what happened next. He pulled off the road into a, a quiet uh, place and just said, well, and she said, well, what? And this conversation for 25 minutes, he repeatedly said to her, did you think I was going to pick you up and bring you to a shopping centre on a Sunday without you giving me something in return? 25 minutes. And what was really sad was, she said, <coughs> by the time was nearly up with him. I'd become so exhausted. I was nearly about to give in. And fortunately, he got fed up and drove her home. But that to me, I mean, and I'm not this generation, Roisin, as you know, I'm not the generation that's on those websites, but I am increasingly horrified by the atmosphere out there, the expectation, the sense of entitlement. And what I'd like to discuss some other time, actually, is how women uh, deal with those websites and what, they, what role they see themselves playing in those, in those encounters. That's my I mean, there's a lot, today. and I think, um, thanks, Cathy, I think we need to almost dedicate another podcast or two to this subject, but I just want to read out a bit of Orla Muldoon's article as well. She said, Anna Creasel's death is a particularly dark representation of men's violence towards women. Make no mistake, violence by men against women is a continuum, and this is its most extreme form. Murder is only a fraction of the burden arising from this form of violence. Violence against women and girls contributes to lifelong ill health and early death. She says, it's time we stop looking the other way, and the way you said it is it's time we grasp the nettle. We have an endemic problem in this country with gender-based violence. It's so entrenched that boys as young as 13 visited dreadful violence on a vulnerable girl, and you see, I think that's something that we should start doing. I think we should start calling it gender-based violence because especially where there's any sexual um, relations or any tr- attempt of that in the violence, it is gender-based violence. That's what it's called. OK, can you answer the people on, on the various places yesterday, the various social media yesterday, who said, what about, what about yeah. all? I mean, they, if you look at it... They brought up some really important issues, yes. some important problems that need to be tackled. Male-on-male violence, the fact that men are killing each other, men are being, you know, in schools, bullying, all that happens between men and boys, and that's awful, and we need to tackle that too. And 20%, by the way, of the sexual assault uh, claims brought into Garda stations last year were made by men. So that is So an we're issue. not saying it's not an important issue, we're but not. we're just saying this is a different issue and this is something we also need to, to talk about and to fix. And I believe myself by fixing this and allowing men the space to talk about it and to become part of the solution as well, that it helps men too. So this is not just about helping women if that's what it seems like and we don't care about men. We care about everybody because we love men and we love women and we know that being... Uh, 
proactive in this, like as Richie Sadler and people like him are doing in schools around consent classes and things like that, which has shown up some very interesting um, developments and he's continuing that work. But we just need to, and, and this is what gets me about sex education in the, our schools as well. We are not talking to young people properly about sex. It's, you know, it has been for so long just about don't get pregnant, you know. We're not talking about sexual joy. We're not talking about that beautiful relationships and things that an intimacy that can happen between people who are consenting, you know. And they're getting all these messages from, as you say, pornography and, and all sorts of um, websites. Look, there's no one quick fix, but I think talking about it in the way that you have, Cathy, and the way Orla has, and hopefully men getting on board. And we must mention White Ribbon, the great yes. organisation which devotes itself to stopping uh, male violence against women. And it's run by men, you know, and it's it's a brilliant organisation. And it's International Men's Day coming up soon. And in case anyone was wondering, because every time Women's Day comes up, men go, ooh, when's Men's Day? Well, I think it's November 19th, guys, if you're listening. November uh, 19th? Yes. We might and market maybe ourselves. Maybe we'll market ourselves, exactly. Because, as you said, we love men. But um, anyway... That's what we think about that, and uh, just we need there to are name so things for many what they are. Threads coming out of that. Yeah, we a could lot. do a thousand podcasts yeah. based anyway, on that whole. I feel like I've got that off my chest, Kathy. You just needed to. Well, I'm delighted to hear <laughs> that, and we're delighted also to move on to something much more joyful, yes. which is the girl guides. I was such a culture, I have to say. I know <laughs> nothing about girl guides. I would have joined them in a heartbeat. <laughs> I was in the guides. come near me in my rural I loved fastness. being in the guides. Were you in the guides? Yeah, it was fantastic. And was yeah, it? I loved just going away and going on trips. And Did you learn to light a fire? Yeah, yeah. What else? Uh, just, uh, I mean, I'm not very, I wasn't very good at those. I never got all those badges for sewing and all the other things. I was a bit rubbish. But I just liked going along. Um, I wasn't the most committed member, but I remember going on a couple of trips to like Wicklow and then one to England, I think, as well. And it was just nice being England. part of a troop. Yeah. That was a very good girl, yeah. guys. Group. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But them. they're great, aren't they? There's some news about the Girl Guides this week, wasn't there? There was. And there's something amazing going on. And it's actually the ripples from it that are actually astonishing. Um, Irish Girl Guides members are hosting 23 Girl Guide leaders from 18 countries across the globe for a leadership development seminar in Gormanston Park in County Meath. And what I found so impressive about this is that by the time these women go home, that's happening in 18 hubs around the world and they're all getting the same leadership skills course. When they go home, by the time they've passed on their learnings to their own communities, 100,000 girls and women will have learned what these young women are learning this week. Isn't that amazing? It's brilliant. All parts of the world. Yeah, it's really positive and it just shows you that there is an awful lot of good going on out there as well as the stuff we were talking about. But another nice thing that's happened is we had a wonderful podcast with Marion Keys, which is going to be on our Monday's episode. Sorry you weren't there, Cathy, but it was <laughs> it was really a wonderful chat. And uh, Marion Keys is such a good friend to this show and she has been from the very beginning. Uh, but we really had a laugh because Marion is wonderful for someone you can talk to about uh, the importance of red lipstick for brightening up your day and also talk about politics and homelessness and all those things so it really ran the gamut it was across all, all actually types that's, of that's part of her, her appeal, her, her, her appeal yeah. is that she can run the gamut mm. um, I will certainly listen to it great even though I wasn't <laughs> and thanks to Green and Blacks for that podcast too. thanks to Green and Blacks so what have you got on today's me. episode on today's podcast we are diving deep into the complex and challenging place of women in the workplace and to talk to you about that is entrepreneur and author Margaret Heffernan not the Dunn Stores, Margaret. 
different Margaret entirely. This Margaret began her impressive career as an award-winning producer in the BBC. From there, she went on to become CEO of Britain's Trade Association for Independent Film and TV Producers. She has been the chief executive officer of five different businesses and is the author of books including How She Did It, or as it was called in America, Women on Top. That book explored how women entrepreneurs are rewriting the rules of business success. Roisin Ingle talked to her about her years of experience as a CEO and about how women and men can find equality in the workplace, make our voices heard and master how to balance a busy work and home life. Heffernan was in Dublin for the Simmons Leadership Conference, which was a wonderful couple of days with a lineup of powerful speakers. With its 40-year history of championing the advancement of professional women and a mission to inspire female leaders to challenge themselves, the Simmons Leadership Conference is considered to be the world's premier women's leadership event. This year's event, held in Dublin for the second year running, convened some 500 professional women and men from across Europe and around the world. The 2019 event was generously supported by leading companies with a strong commitment to Ireland, including Cisco, Dell and Liberty Mutual. And here she is, Margaret Heffernan. Margaret Heffernan, thank you very much for joining the Women's Podcast. You're here at the Simmons Leadership Conference and you're going to be talking about the future, which is very topical because I think a lot of people are feeling there isn't going to be one for a lot of people. I'm thinking of uh, Greta Thunberg and all Mm. those amazing activists. So what are you going to be talking about? Mm. Well, it's probably a little counterintuitive, but I've just finished a book that comes out next year, which is about how we think about the future. And the first half of it, I guess, or first third of it, is really a kind of takedown of the forecasting industry. Because really my argument is we don't know the future. And everybody who keeps trying to tell us that they do is really trying to co-opt it. It's a form of propaganda in interests of various industries, various individuals, various ideologies. And I think, you know, the book was predicated very much on a what I think of as a nerdy data point, which I rather like collecting. Because you're a nerd. Well, kind of, yes, let's be <laughs> <It's> honest. <okay. laughs> um, which was that the, you know, the most expert people who study forecasting say that now you can't do any reliable forecasting much more than 400 days out, and that's if you're outstanding. And if you're average, like the rest of us, it's maybe 150 days out. So all of these people who are brandishing really dazzling, shiny statistics saying by 2035, 47% of jobs will be lost to automation. This is some kind of propaganda and you need to start asking yourself, you know, in the interest of what. But I think it's also that, you know, if you accept the point that we don't know the future, then it completely changes the way you have to think about planning organizing and leading. Because, you know, in the past, we used to forecast, plan, execute. Those are the sort of three legs of management. And one leg just fell off that stool. So I think it means you have to reconsider and reconfigure just about everything. And that's incredibly challenging because we like the security of thinking we know, which is one reason we fall for forecasts and we fall for, you know, people who act as if they have magic insight. Um, but I think it calls for a great deal more creativity. I think it calls for a lot more capacity to innovate. It also means that we can't afford to be efficient in the sense of kind of cutting everything to the bone. It means we need to have 
kind of more skills than we think we need. We need to have richer, deeper networks than we think we need because we don't know what we're going to need. Okay. Do you think in the past there was more of an ability to forecast? I mean, do you think this is an, a new thing? Yes. That it's even more uncertain than ever before? Yeah, I do. And it's not so much that, um, that there wasn't uncertainty in the past. I mean, um, you know, there's some writers going away saying this is the greatest age of uncertainty the world's ever known. And you think about the Blitz or the Black Death or, you know, the Hundred Years' War or whatever, and you think, oh, really? Um, so I don't think it's that so much. But clearly what's happened in the last 40 years, probably, is we've moved from a world that's sort of complicated, which means it's sort of measurable and there are patterns in it and you can use the patterns to project forward to a world that's complex, which means there are patterns, but they don't repeat themselves predictably. It means that very small things can have a gigantic impact, Greta Thunberg being a great example, right? And it means that expertise won't always save you because you may not be able to keep up with the kind of expertise that you need. And the consequence of that is that, for example, you can be running a perfectly good business one day and tomorrow you wake up, as one of the companies I work with did, and discover you've lost half your business because of one review, bad review on Amazon. Was that a restaurant? Right. No, it was an uh, a electronic device okay. manufacturer. And they got right. one bad review. One bad review and half the business vanishes. Imagine if you had been in the business of manufacturing plastic straws. I wouldn't like to be in the bottled water business these days myself. Now, a year ago, these looked like perfectly sound, you know, predictable businesses, and now they're toxic. Think of Harvey Weinstein a couple of years ago, icon in the movie industry. Today, absolutely toxic. And this isn't, you know, these things were not foreseen, and neither were they foreseeable. And so that's the kind of environment that we're working in. And I would argue that every industry, every company has to contemplate the possibility of their plastic straw moment, which is they're not going to see it coming. It's going to happen really fast. And then ask the question, what do I need to have in myself and in my organization to be able to respond to something that I don't know is coming, but will probably come in sh some shape or form? And I know you're in the business of solutions and not just problems. So yeah. what are you suggesting? Because, I mean, it, it sounds a bit like it's sort of like a, a, not a rainy day, but it's an emergency sort of pivoting strategy that people yeah. have to have in their back pocket yeah. for when the plastic straw moment comes. Right. So what are you encouraging um, businesses? And actually, I wanted to talk to you later on about how this applies to actually just individuals too, sure, because I absolutely. think we're all living in that kind of world. Yeah. What, do, what are you suggesting that businesses do yeah. in order to be ready when those right. moments happen? So I think it means we have to stop thinking about planning and start thinking about preparedness. I think um, a lot of preparedness is about doing lots of experiments. Experiments are the way you poke complex systems to see how they're functioning. And there's a really interesting example, which is that you know, 3M um, has always done lots of experiments. And the ones that succeed, you know, they turn into businesses and scale, and that's all great. But they made a particular practice when, when experiments failed of doing a real diagnostic on why. What was, you know, what was it that meant that this brilliant idea didn't quite work somehow? And very often what they found was that for anything to succeed requires that the ecosystem around it supports it. 
And what they regularly found was that the ecosystem wasn't there yet. They were too early. So they didn't abandon the idea. They just kind of parked it. And people used to talk about 3M saying, wow, isn't it incredible how they can turn out these, these products so quickly just at the right moment? And the truth is, if you'd measured when they started, right, they'd been at this for years. So it's partly about doing experiments. It's partly about really understanding when the, when the experiments don't work, what's wrong. It's definitely about mapping ecosystems. And this is something I think is so fascinating in the companies I work with, which is I ask them to map the ecosystem that they inhabit. And they, you know, they, in the middle they draw their company. And then they draw a few little comp competitors. And that's sort of it. Right? And, there's a, you know, there, and then you start saying, well, what about the, the society in which you function? And I would have the presumed they would have their customers in there somewhere. Uh, some of them do, right? It's kind um, of worrying. But, you know, but, the, but the customers inhabit a society, and the society is being influenced by all sorts of things. And if you map the ecosystem properly, it's enormous. And then you can start thinking about how much of this can I influence how much of it can I not influence? And where do I need to keep watching? Where do I need to do the horizon scanning? Because some of these things are going to have a huge impact on my business, and some of them may not be as important, so I can afford to pay less attention to those. So you have to start thinking of where you are within a complex system, some of which you can control, but not very much, some of which you can influence, and some of which you can't influence at all. And then I think you need to start thinking about, uh, in order to have that sort of influence and in order to have some kind of uh, capacity to scan what's going on, what are the talents and capabilities that I need in my organization? And in particular, what are the sort of social behaviors that are going to support improvisation, um, you know, really quick um, responsiveness and adaptability. Now, that all sounds pretty obvious, I think, mm -hmm. until you think that almost all of our management systems are pretty rigid. In the last 10 years since the crisis, they've been cut to the bone, which means they're very fragile. There isn't any excess in there. And so you put pressure on these really fragile systems, they'll break. So I think it means a huge reconsideration of how much austerity and efficiency are our friends in a world where we don't know what we're going to need tomorrow. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. And bringing it back to this is the women's podcast, and I know you work a lot with women in leadership yeah. and look at that. How can women mm. apply these things? Or can they? Is that a yeah. silly question or is that a fair well, question? Well, I think women can and I think they do. And in some ways, I think they always have. Yeah, they're sort of masters of it in some yeah. way. So in 2007, um, I wrote a book called How She Does It, which Americans retitled as uh, Women on Top. Um, okay. I believe that to your listeners to yeah. decide which is the better title. <laughs> Definitely the first one, I would say. Right? Um, and it looked at the rise of female entrepreneurship because I'd encountered this, another nerdy data point, that uh, women-owned businesses in the U.S., which is, which is the place that collects most data about women's own, women-owned businesses, uh, were about 46% of the U.S. economy. They were growing faster than businesses as usual. They were creating more jobs in businesses on average. They were more likely to stay in business 
for over five years than most businesses, and um, they were more profitable. And I thought, well, this is astounding. How come I, as a woman, as a female entrepreneur, how come I didn't know this? And I thought it's a really interesting test case because it shows what, left to their own devices when they have power, how do women lead? And so I interviewed hundreds of women business owners. And what did I discover? I discovered they had a fantastic sense of zeitgeist. They are always scanning the horizon. And they're doing it for two reasons. One is they are the market. Right? They're responsible for most purchasing. But the other thing is, if you don't have power, then the way you stay safe is by staying in touch with what's going on. And the way you stay in touch with what's going on is not just by scanning the horizon. It's also by knowing lots of people who do the same thing so that you create informal networks of collective intelligence. And that's what all of these women were doing. It's why they somehow got to market at just the right time. It's why they understood trends that nobody else was paying attention to. And then I you know, looked at their leadership style, and one of the things that always happened is I would write to the the owner, founder, and say, I would like to come and interview you. Very specific about this. And because it was sort of a test or an experiment, you could call it. And I would, you know, roll up to the offices and go to interview the fa female founder. And I would always be shown into a meeting room and there would be the senior leadership team. No single CEO ever initially met me alone. The idea was, the company isn't me, it's us. It was a completely different model. Did this happen every single time? Every single that time. That is amazing. And as time went on, I was more insistent about, I'm just coming to see you later, perhaps in the day I'd like to meet other. It never happened. Nobody thought the success of my business is all about me. So talk to me about that, because some of it will be obvious, but just from your own research mm. and looking into it and really thinking about it, what did that say? Well, it said about women they, particularly. Yeah, I think it said that women lead through what I think of as orchestration. You know, that actually what they're thinking about is what's the best configuration of people rather than one heroic soloist who knows it all. Um, I think they paid, they, all of them paid much more attention to culture. Uh, many of them, and I thought this was really interesting, many of them when you said, you know, why did you start your business? I would say the number one reason was rage. They'd all had the experience of working in organizations where they were marginalized, trivialized, ignored, whatever. And they were just determined to show that you could do business in a different way. And so they did do business in a different way. And having been in environments that weren't diverse, they built deliberately diverse environments where not just that, so that women could succeed, but men could succeed too. And so they had a much more collective vision of what the leadership job was. It's really making me think. I was at a launch of a book last night uh, called It's a Yes, which was about our successful campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment. I yeah. don't know if you know anything about it. But I know a lot about it. Right. But, well, there was um, our Together for Yes team that basically led led that. Was yeah. a was a totally non-hierarchical thing. So it was three women leading. And exactly as you said, and even the coverage of their strategy was kind of dismissed in the beginning and people couldn't understand why there wasn't this one figurehead and why they were sending out these different people to, to be interviewed about it. Um, and it was a deliberate strategy that they were mm. going to do it their way and they weren't going to go look at other campaigns that had right. been led by one figure. Um, so it's just really reminding me yeah. of that. 
And that was an instinctive thing from their yeah. part to do it. And it meant that they could bring everyone along, you know. Well, I think, you know, many of us have had the experience of working for these soloist heroic leaders and realizing how inadequate it is. And, um, and that's, you know, that partly takes you back to complexity, which is it simply isn't possible for one person, however brilliant. And I've worked for some extremely brilliant men in the past. It's simply not possible to know enough. And it's not, imposs- it's not possible to both know enough and be able to challenge yourself. So hierarchies which suppress challenge are always going to be a problem because they're going to make people very conformist. I want to do what other people want me to do to get ahead, rather than to provide the kind of challenge that every organization needs. Do you think, again, another factor with women is, and I find this myself in any kind of work environment, I'm never afraid to ask for help or advice or Mm. to go to the person who kind of I know knows more. Like, it doesn't kind of make me feel as though I'm looking weak. I feel like that's a smart thing to do. Is that something you found as well? It is. I mean, it's quite interesting because, you know, in medical school, that's been studied in depth. And the consequence is women get lower marks, right, because they don't look as authoritative. Um, I suspect it makes them much better doctors because I'd much rather have a doctor who, if if a bit confused, asks for help than just trying to bluff her way through it. Um, So, yes, I think we're accustomed to asking for help because we're accustomed to giving help. And if you – and there are are tons of stories that look – sorry, tons of studies that look at – really successful organizations. And what characterizes them is helpfulness. Because if you're helpful, if you have a helpful culture, then organization uh, information doesn't get trapped. It spreads across the organization. And that means everybody's getting smarter all the time by dint of working together. And when you see organizations that go really badly awry, it's typically because information gets completely siloed and trapped or hoarded. So I don't want to tell you something that you might need to know because you might get ahead of me. That's how disasters happen. Yeah, it sounds so familiar. Um, it's it's really interesting because do you, did you find writing women on top or how she did it, which is obviously much better, uh, that was there any appetite from men or male-led organisations to kind of take these examples and say, okay, actually, maybe we'll try them yeah. or... Is there? I mean, that's well, it's, hopeful, it's I really interesting because I remember my husband saying, you know, the, the only problem with this book, Margaret, is it needs to be read by guys. Oh, that's what I was thinking, yeah. And, you know, and typically, and we know this, you know, um, women buy books by men and women, and men mostly, bo- mostly buy books by men, you know. So maybe I should have done a J.K. Rowling. Michael Heffernan. And, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because, um, I mean, it was just astounding the degree to which the you know, the data that amazed me, it amazed everybody. It's like there was this huge success story going on and nobody was writing about it. Yeah. And um, moving on to disagreement, because mm. it's something, another thing you're kind of a specialist yes. in. And, <laughs> and something I think uh, maybe some women, I can't generalise, struggle with a bit, being the person in the room who, who says, actually, everything I'm hearing, I have a different idea. Yeah. Talk to me about disagreement and why it's so important and yeah. why you kind of studied it. Yeah. Well, so after I wrote How She Does It, I wrote a book called Willful Blindness about how individuals and organizations go spectacularly wrong in spite of the fact that what they need to know is right in front of them. And one cause of that is what academics call organizational silence, which is I know, but I'm not speaking up. 
And the, remote, the main reason people don't speak up is they're afraid. They're afraid that they will be punished by their supervisors or by their coworkers. You know, don't rock the boat. It's going to make the meeting longer. It's all too difficult. And also the fact that, you know, most human beings are conflict-averse. But the truth is that conflict is how organizations think. Great ideas don't start as great ideas. They start as kind of vague ideas, often quite half-baked ideas. And it's when I tell you about them and you say, oh, have you thought about this or thought about that? Or I know somebody who knows about that. Or I don't think it would really work because of that. A thousand conversations like that underlie the creation of great companies, great products, great services, and great ideas. So you need that give and take all the time to, to refine these ideas. And if you don't have it, then they mostly you know, languish and are stillborn. So I think it's really critical for anybody, men or women, to learn how to have what I think of as constructive conflict, to learn how to say, well, but you could think about it this way, or have you considered such and such? Or it's interesting, I've never found that. And it was so interesting. Yesterday I was at a conference and there was someone talking about forced ranking and how to do it better. And what I, is forced ranking forced for ranking. the non-corporate yeah, business yeah. people? So in? forced ranking is when you assess everybody, you know, performance reviews and all that stuff. And then you put them on a bell curve and, and the top kind of 8 or 10% get you know, considered high potential and they're given training programs and all that jazz. And the bottom 5 to 10% are shown the door because obviously they're rubbish. And this is a system that has pervaded management. Uh, it was, it was uh, kind of designed by GE, who proselytized it around the world. Now, there are, there are a lot of problems with this system. The first is, imagine you have a company full of excellent people. You're getting rid of 5 to 10% of excellent people every year. Right? That's stupid. Um, the second problem is, it's assumed that this sort of inherently competitive structure will mean that people are all fighting to get to the top. Well, actually, it doesn't work that way because people can see that the safe... You don't have to be a mathematical genius to see this, that actually the safe place to be is in the big, fat middle of the bell curve. So just be deeply average, not great and not terrible, and you will have a much easier life. So the idea that it forces the best to the top, absolutely not. It forces mediocrity to the middle. And the other thing that we found was that in the top bunch, nobody would share information or help each other. Because if I help you, you might go up in the rankings and I might fall out. So I am going to hoard informa information um, because I don't want to help you, because it's not in my interest to help you. So we've created all of these kinds of systems, which we thought would mean you know, the fantastic talent would compete. And actually, it backfired spectacularly. And so now I think what we're trying to do, and I find this kind of amusing in a sad kind of way, is we're trying to figure out how to design systems where people want to help each other and, and trust each other because we understand that if you don't feel some kind of sense of solidarity with your colleagues and trust each other, you can't have the arguments you need to have. You've got to feel safe. And uh, I suppose the question of how to make an organisation safe is, is, a, 
is a long answer or, or is it something you can just touch on a little bit? Because I think that's uh, it's really resonating with me. And I think if you don't feel safe at work, safe to hold up your hand and say, look, I'm not trying to criticise anyone, but I see it better way and I'd right. like to explain it. If you can't actually do that, then I think right. there's something seriously wrong in the culture. But I do think there are still a lot of companies where that's the case. I mean, I suppose suggestion boxes were invented for yeah, that reason, but right. it has to go a bit beyond that. It, it's a change of kind of, how do you create that safe culture? Well, first of all, I think it's really hard because it isn't just a function of the company. Right, if you have high unemployment, high levels of personal debt, people are going to be afraid no matter what. Um, but what I think you can do within the organization is make it clear that this kind of constructive conflict is valuable, important, and it's how the work gets done. I think you have to model and demonstrate that. So when I ran tech companies in the US, I had a lot of people who traveled with me from company to company and who were very confident in doing that with me. And what people could see from that was if you argue with Margaret, not only does she not, you know, fire you or punish you or think you're an idiot, you know, she's much more likely to respect you. And when people see that, then you tend to get more of it. And it's interesting. I teach on a leadership program in the UK at the moment. And at one of the residentials we were holding last year, there was a guy there who was a chief data officer at the Bank of England who picked an argument with me. And my instant thought was, wow, this is a really interesting guy. You know, I didn't think, how dare he, you know, I'm faculty and he is a mere participant. You know, I thought, good for you. I want to know more about you because you've definitely got something to say for yourself. Mm. Just back to women again, particularly. Do you um, have much to say or have you thought a lot about uh, women within organisations who are perhaps trying to help change that culture, but they might be in the minority and there's some very obvious things they want to do, but it's, it's difficult. Do you work with people like that? And have you mm. any suggestions, I suppose, for women listening who, who might be in that yeah. situation? I think the most important thing is to find allies. And there's a, a very notable businesswoman in the U.S. named Geraldine Laybourne, um, who worked for Nickelodeon and then started her own um, TV network, Gold Oxygen. And she had this fantastic tip, which was, you know, women often have this experience, which is they put, they, they're in a meeting, they come up with an idea, everybody ignores them, and then Tom repeats the same idea and everybody thinks he's a genius, right? She said, you've always got to have a buddy and the buddy amplifies what you say. So I say some idea, and Colleen says, I really liked Margaret's idea. Or Colleen says something and nobody pays any attention. I say, I think we should go back to what Colleen said. Explain again, Colleen, what you were thinking. And it's really about elevating people, women's presence and making sure that their voices are heard. And I think to the degree that we do that for each other, whether we have a formal pact or not, that's absolutely critical. And it's something I try to do a lot, especially with junior women, because you know the more their voice is heard, the better and more attuned and refined their voice will become. And I think you know when I started my career, I don't think women were great at supporting each other. I think that has been a sea change in my life and in my career. 
And I think I see more and more of it around. And the only thing that's most important now is let's not stop. Yeah, do you think it was because back when feminism, uh, sort of early yeah. 1.0 feminism, was about sort of almost emulating the way men were doing it and dr- pulling Definitely. the ladder up? And as I think it was Gina Miller who said recently about it was really just men in skirts, but doing exactly the totally. same thing. And, and a sea change seems to be happening. Where you yeah. describe about those women founders who are doing things differently and succeeding. Right. So... What I'm interested in is um, we've come a long way with, with feminism now. Things mm. are changing. But how do we make that next step where, where men also can see that there is a better way, yeah. that the patriarchy hasn't helped them either, that right. that we can sort of throw it all up and reinvent it mm. a bit? Do you see that happening? Because I think men need to come on board. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just kind of women in their own little silo doing right. their different things. Exactly. Um, I see a lot of it. I see a lot of it, obviously, in younger generations, but I see it also in my own generation. I see a recognition that actually the patriarchy has created an awful lot of chaos and mayhem. Um, I see a lot of men, frankly, embarrassed by some of the extremely macho leadership that we see in the world, embarrassed and ashamed. But I think the other thing I see is men coming to see that this different way of working and leading benefits them. And when I wrote my first book, The Naked Truth, I got lots of, you know, fantastic letters from women talking about, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. But I got fantastic emails from guys saying, you know, the thing is, the kind of working environment you are describing, that's where I want to work. That actually I, I can't stand the pecking order any more than women can. I think it's destructive. I think it's wasteful and humiliating. And this new kind of vision of leadership that women have, I want to sign up for that. So in that respect, I don't think it's intrinsically gendered. I just think that what's happened is we've moved from a stage where we thought we had to catch up to a stage where we think, actually, we're ahead of the pack. And within that, in those emails, perhaps, was there much about um, parenting? Because the one big thing I see in terms of equality is this idea that even though they're kicking ass at work and doing all the stuff, they still have to go home and do most of the housework, most of the childminding, and that this imbalance that I still think is quite unspoken. And that women themselves still think that that's their job. When, in fact, anybody can do that stuff. Like, let's be honest. Maybe breastfeeding, okay, they can't do that. But everything else. So... Is that something you're noticing? Because I have um, one friend, Finian, who is working on talking to men about that. Like, would you like a four-day mm. week so that you can spend the extra day with your children yeah. um, to go to the playground? Or would you like a longer lunch mm. hour to do that? And in the past, maybe that was seen w- among men as a kind of a weird, weak mm-hmm. thing to want to do. But are you seeing that men are more invested now in, in putting their hand up and saying, no, my quality of life and being a parent and all that kind of stuff right. has to come into it? Yeah. I've seen a lot more of it. I mean, I, th- I certainly think it's impossible to be equal at work if you're not equal at home, for sure. It's just Im- logistically impossible and emotionally impossible. But I also, you know, I noticed, you know, in supermarkets or airports or whatever, you know, who's doing the childcare here? And, um, and it's certainly much more shared than it was. Yeah. Um, I also think that, you know, many people in my generation had fathers who were largely absent. And, um, and I would say, you know, my husband had a father who was largely absent, was at work. And nobody kind of wants to be those fathers. You know, they want to have a life while they work, not, you know, when they retire. They don't want to kind of put it on hold for 40 years. And I think there's also, of course, an increasing recognition that what you do at home 
enhances your ability and skill to work with other people at work. So it isn't, well, if you're at home, you're not developing as a human being. I mean, there was this fantastic study some time ago um, when I think Volvo experimented with mandatory paternity leave, and lo and behold, they discovered when men came back from their paternity leave, they were much better managers and much better communicators. So I think there is a, a growing awareness that actually to have a, a, a balanced and a rich life makes people better at work and at home. I also think that, you know, a whole generation of men has grown up with working mothers. And they don't, you know, they, it doesn't occur to them that, that only one person is going to do the work at home. I mean, my kids have grown up and they've seen my husband and myself sharing everything we do. You know, I travel a huge amount. My, that means my husband has to take care of everything at home. And so that's, you know, so they've grown up with a very different model than I did. I mean, I, I say this because we had a very interesting diversity workshop at work. And uh, the one was lots of things that were really interesting to me but they did this kind of walk thing where walk across the room if this is your situation if you're adopted if you were grew up in a po mm. poor household and it was really interesting to to watch people and see things about your colleagues that you didn't know but the one that really stood out for me is like stay on this side of the room if you have someone at home who's not working basically mm. and those of us who walked across who don't have that mm. and you're looking across at all these men who who and you sort of suddenly wow. got this wow yeah well, you've had, you've had essentially, I mean, I wouldn't put a woman as a class them as an assistant, but you've had someone right. doing all that stuff. That's right. That, you know, we have to do. Yeah. That you don't even think of. And then you realise, actually, there's, there's people who can, and then you realise they're quite senior people. Yeah. And that makes sense now. Yeah. How do you get to be doing that? Because you're free, aren't you? That's right. You're free from all those things. And I'm yeah. not saying they don't do anything, but it's certainly that the bulk of oh, it no wasn't question. their responsibility. No question. And I mean, there were certainly times in my career where I thought, oh my God, if only I had a, a, a wife <laughs> at home, you know. <laughs> Um, and somebody to to think just to think about the stuff. Not never yeah. mind, just do it. But you know, not in the middle of a meeting to suddenly be thinking, "Oh my God, I need to go to the dry cleaners for get the suit that I need for the meeting tomorrow." Whatever, um, you know, because just the cognitive load becomes, you know, it just your brain feels scrambled sometimes. But you know, it's funny. I'm thinking about when my kids were at school and the mothers that I would meet at the school gate, and I would say about half of them worked and half of them didn't. And, of course, the ones that worked, we all supported each other incredibly because we couldn't function otherwise. So we had a trem tremendous support network. But when I looked at the ones who weren't working, and, you know, many of them were, you know, super intelligent, lovely women and excellent parents, um, I just kept thinking, you know, two, three years from now, your kids are gone. And what are you doing? And... And where and you know and I'm so conscious because I experienced this myself when I had my first child. Where is your confidence to do things going to come from? Because it really disappears, I think, if you're not kind of out there doing something. And it's not at all that I wouldn't say if that's what women want to do, they shouldn't do it. But I think that it's really important to remember life is long. Keeping your confidence and your competence up is really crucial. And one of the best entrepreneurs I ever interviewed started her company after all her kids had grown up. And I said, gee, you know, how did you get the confidence and the competence? And she said, all the time my kids were at school, I ran volunteering organizations. And, you know, if you can manage volunteers who don't need to be there, aren't being paid, and can skulk off at the least hint of trouble, 
you can manage anything. So I think there are different ways of managing this that different kinds of women prefer. But I think the main thing for me is whether it's paid work or not and whether it's kind of recognized by society or not, the key thing for women is to keep their competence and their confidence up. Because then, you know, if disaster strikes and suddenly there's no breadwinner, or disaster strikes and you want to leave the breadwinner, or disaster doesn't strike but your kids have left and you now have a lot of time on your hands and a lot of skills and a lot of intelligence, you want to be able to put that to good use. You talk such a lot of common sense, it's amazing, and I'm, lo- I'm loving this conversation. Just to go back a little bit to your childhood, is there anything in your, in your upbringing that uh, sort of led sort of as a symbol that you would one day be this leadership <laughs> expert? Like, were, what kind of a, yeah. a kid were you and what lessons did you learn? Were there pivotal moments in, in your yeah. growing up? Well, I think there are two moments, or well, kind of two yeah, themes, if you like. One was I did have a stay-at-home mum, very bright, very entrepreneurial, not particularly happy marriage, and who never left because she had no money of her own. It absolutely bred in me that you, if you're going to be independent, it means being financially independent. You've always got to have your running away money, no matter what happens. The other thing is, is different. <laughs> so um, I played the piano all my life. I used to be a really good pianist. I'm not anymore. But um, I was asked to play piano at a big graduation ceremony for um, a school that I went to when I guess I was, I don't know, 12, 13, something like that. So we selected the pieces, and I practiced them and practiced them to get them you know, really polished. And then at the last minute, for some reason, they said, no, we don't want that piece. We want another piece, which I thought was really insipid and pathetic and horrible. <laughs> and I was kind of agonizing about this because I thought it was a bad choice, and I also didn't think I'd play it as well because I hadn't had as much preparation. And my father said to me this just brilliant incendiary thing. He said, well, you know, Margaret, once you get started, they can't really stop you. And I think this was kind of my get-out-of-jail idea. Just do it the way you want to do it and see who stops you. Yeah, and you know, and I just, you know, I, I mean, I credit my dad with that. Okay, so just before we leave it, then uh, tips for women. I know that's a broad thing, but yeah. at the moment, the problems that you're seeing or the challenges you're seeing women face, particularly in the workplace or anywhere else, what would you say to young women and to women who are maybe in the middle of um, career and juggling the home and children and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, what kind of, uh, yeah, advice? Well, forget trying to be perfect. There's no such thing anywhere, ever. Um, Definitely have your running away money, always. There's a kind of magic thing, which is if you have the running away money, you never need it because you negotiate with such confidence. Um, So I think that's really crucial. Help everybody you can. Uh, You can't help everybody, but if you can, you know, if people ask for help and you can help them, do. All my greatest opportunities have come to me from women who were junior to me whom I helped at some point. Um, It wasn't about brown-nosing or sucking up. It was absolutely about helping anybody I could if they asked for it or if I saw that they needed help. Um, And I think the other thing is just to remember that confidence doesn't come from motivational speakers. Confidence comes from competence. 
It comes from racking up achievements. So do stuff, do hard stuff. You know, don't get daunted when it turns out it's harder than you thought. Keep going. And over time, you rack up these achievements and you look back and you think, I did that. That's where my confidence comes from because I know I can own that. I know I wrote the books that I wrote. I know I did the jobs that I did. I know I ran the companies I ran. And really, that's where confidence comes from, I think. Margaret Heffernan, thank you very much. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Margaret Heffernan, and to the Simmons Leadership Conference for facilitating the interview. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Acast, and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast, or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks for listening. I'm Cathy Sheridan and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.